Hi, listeners. This is Andy Steiger. I want to personally invite you to launch 2021. This is an event we do each year here at AC where we look back, give thanks, and look ahead. I'm excited to tell you about the incredible ministry year we've had and the exciting new opportunities ahead. Even during a pandemic, we've had our greatest year of ministry growth to date. I look forward to telling you all that God's doing through this ministry and our incredible staff. If you want to learn more about AC and the new initiatives we're launching in 2022, join us virtually on Zoom for launch. It will take place on October 30th at 4 to 6 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 to 7 Mountain Time, and 7 to 9 Eastern Time. You can find more details and register at apologeticscanada.ca under events. And even if you can't attend live, sign up and we'll send you the video. And now back to our podcast. Hello and welcome to the AC Podcast. My name is Troy. I'm here today with Andy and Steve. How are you guys doing? Doing well. Doing well. How are you guys? I'm doing great. Um, yeah, can't complain. I haven't gotten sick in a long time, so I'm thankful for that. I've had the most annoying stuffy nose for probably about two weeks. And it's it's been driving me crazy because one minute... You can't breathe at all, and you become like an obnoxious mouth breather. And then the next, your nose decides to open up like wide traffic, and then it's like too much air just <laughs> ramming into your skull. I, I hear you. I hear you. Guys, I've uh, been working on a project, and I got to tell you, it's brought a lot of joy to my heart. I've been looking at replacing my kitchen table, and as I've been looking into that, I have not been pleased with what I've found out there. So I said to myself, you know what? I'm going to make a table. Uh. And uh, I don't know if you've seen these, like, you know, thick, <laughs> live-edge wood, you know, tables. Oh, yeah. So I, I went out there and, and found this guy who cuts down trees, and then he slices them up. And he sold me two slices of this tree. And I got to tell you, there's just something magical about having raw lumber that, that you're working with and, and sanding and prepping to be this dinner table at any rate it's pretty magical <laughs> see i i could imagine getting to that point buying the wood and being like wow this will make a fantastic table for someone else to make for me <laughs> because i am way <laughs> in over my head i'd end up leaning it against something my problem is i'm having so much fun i'm like man what am i what am i gonna do here like i only get to make one of these but I am making a matching coffee table. There you go. We should probably jump into things today. We got an interesting show, hey? Yeah, so you sent us a paper with so filled with technical jargon that it made my head spin. But I got through <laughs> it. Uh, thankfully, I've been listening to Andy speak on Polani and his philosophy that uh, I was able to somewhat, you know, kind of keep up with it. But just curious where this paper thing came from. I understand you're scheduled to present it somewhere. Can you tell us a little bit more? Yeah, so this is just a little argument that's found or or big argument. I don't know. It's a it's it's an aspect of my PhD. What we're going to talk about today is a section in in my doctorate. So there's mm -hmm. there's a there's a, an aspect of of my doctorate that's at play here. So I was asked to give uh, a presentation, submit a paper and to present on this 
uh, for the Polani Society, and then this will get published into a journal. So, so Steve, you're right. I don't want to scare off listeners. This the paper <laughs> is written at a at a high highish academic level. But we're not gonna. But we're not. We're gonna bring the plane right on down. I took one look at it and I said, "This is Andy's wheelhouse, and we are all just spectators." <laughs> but but that's okay because I think the topic though is very interesting because what's going to happen is I'm going to present an argument for you. And I and I'm guaranteeing you that this is an argument you've never heard before or thought of. In fact, with the Polani Society, that they actually are quite interested in this because they've never I actually just heard back from a, a scholar who's like, I've never heard this argument before. Like this is very interesting. So so that's what we're gonna be looking at. But but to kind of put because I know that, you know, that for some people, you know, serious mental thinking can be like cough medicine and it needs it needs a little bit of sugar to go down. So what what we're gonna do is we're gonna pair a philosophical argument that again I, I think you'll find quite interesting and unique. But I'm gonna we're gonna we're gonna use the Rosetta Stone to help make sense of this. Now I gotta tell you guys this is where my heart experienced some pain. And that is if you talk with any young person today about the Rosetta Stone, and if you just Google Rosetta Stone, you will find that the Rosetta Stone is a company that teaches you foreign languages. I got this is yep. like this is a knife mm-hmm. to the soul. <laughs> so I've had so I've had yeah. young people I've talked where I've talked about the Rosetta Stone with young people, and they'll be like, "Oh yeah, I use them. They're a great company about how to." Learn Spanish. <laughs> yeah, is that like Duolingo? <laughs> yeah, I know all about it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, what people kind of miss, young people tend to miss, is that that company's name comes from something else, an actual stone called Rosetta Stone, which actually helped us decipher ancient Egyptian hieroglyphics. Uh, so, Andy, tell us a little bit more. What is the history of this stone? Yes. Thank you, Steve. Please make sure that if you ever talk to a young person and they think it's just a company, you need, please set them straight. I can't, I can't handle it. Yes. I'll talk to my people. (laughs) Sorry. On behalf of my millennials everywhere, we, we are collectively apologetic. (laughs) The Rosetta Stone is probably, I guess this is why it it concerns me is it's, it's probably the greatest archaeological find period. And the reason is, is because a lot of people don't realize that until quite recently, and we're talking just a couple hundred years ago, Egyptian hieroglyphics had been a dead language for over a millennia. Like, it, mm-hmm. it had been a dead language for a very long time, about 1,500 years, uh, which is which is crazy. That means, you know, people would go and explore Egypt, and they'd see all these amazing artifacts, and they'd see all this, you know, these inscriptions all over the palaces there. And and the and and just the uh, you know if it's an obelisk or whatever it might be and, and Nancy and I by the way my wife and I have visited Egypt we actually spent two months traveling from the bottom of Egypt all the way all the way up to Alexandria and then all the way over into Egypt and Jordan and there it, it, there's just so much there 
you know, with this with this language written all over it. And, and you could only imagine for archaeologists and just explorers in general, like they're like, man, there's just a wealth of information here that we can't access. It's a it's a dead language. How you know, how are we ever going to get at this? And Steve, you're right. There's this black stone that was found in Rosetta in Egypt. Thus, the Rosetta Stone was found in 1799, and it was during uh, Napoleon's conquests uh, there in Egypt that this that this ar- archaeological find is found. Now that stone, you can still see it today, and I had the privilege of, of seeing that in the British Museum. It it is still there to be found. And so what what we want to do as we get into this topic, I want to give a little bit of a history of how the Rosetta Stone was deciphered. And then I want to apply the principles that we're going to be talking about in this to show how you could do something similar with deciphering what a human being is, which I think is very <laughs> is very interesting. So I guess you could say in some sense, some sense, the Rosetta Stone can help you understand what Egyptian Egyptian hieroglyphics is, but it can also help you understand what a person is. Now, just as we're getting into this, I have to say, I mean, I've been kind of overplaying this whole thing about Andy's paper being filled with technical jargon and things like that. Sure, there are some technical words in there, but one thing that I want to encourage our listeners with, a lot of these big words that people who are academic, when when they use these words, a lot of them are just actually tell you simple things, right? It's just part of how academia runs is you want to come up with words that or terms that everybody agrees on. And that's why they start to come up with these terms um, that are unfamiliar to most people. But actually, you know, the way Andy has laid out his paper the concepts in there are actually quite understandable. And so I think as we talk through this, like don't don't be scared off by the fact that, you know, Andy's done his PhD dissertation on it. One of the gifts that Andy actually has is in boiling down these things so that you and I can understand it really well. So I just want to put that out there. I, I know we exaggerate the difficulty of it just to kind of make fun of the fun of it, but it's actually it's it's quite understandable. Yes, we do trust Andy's communication ability, for sure. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, guys. I appreciate that, Steve. So let's jump into this. Uh, uh, As we think about this language, okay? So you've got—you're in Egypt, and you've got these stones— whether they be a building or their sculpture or whatever, and they've got language written on them, right? So it's got this Egyptian hieroglyphics, this ancient language is carved into the stone, and it raises an important question. And this is a profound philosophical question. And that is, how do you access that information? How do you access the information that is is carved into that stone? And so there are two ways in which you could go about doing that. One would be referred to as a bottom-up approach, and the other would be referred to as a top-down approach. And and again, as Steve was saying, that might sound like a fancy term, but it's very basic. It means bottom-up means, well, what happens if I just analyze the stone, or the object itself that contains the carving or language, is mm-hmm. it possible by analyzing, so so take the, the Rosetta Stone, is it possible to take that stone, and interestingly enough, we, we know 
the the type of stone it is and and we we have the capabilities to examine that stone at, at a at a molecular level if we take that approach that bottom up approach is it possible to decipher egyptian hieroglyphics mm-hmm. is it possible to figure out or to access the information that it mm-hmm. contains I think that's the challenge of a dead language, right? You can't look at just how the letters are arranged or whatever. If you don't know the language, you can't figure it out just by looking at how the letters are arranged or how, you know, it, it has been carved into the stone. Like even if you could like like Andy said, like even if you could look at even the molecular structure of the stone and how these things are arranged, like you could go dig as deep as you want, like you could go into like the down to the quantum level. How are these things arranged? Even if you could know all of that, there's you still won't know the meaning of that language. You can't figure it out. Yeah, I remember when I was getting my ESL certificate, and one of the things our teachers were telling us is like, as you're when you're teaching English, it's not about just presenting the English. It's you also have to present the barriers of understanding English. And so that varies depending on people group dynamic. You know, if I'm trying to teach someone the um, there or pronouncing how to pronounce their L's and R's and those sorts of things, I have to understand culturally what their language does. And so, for example, a lot of times in the Asian community, we'd have to really break down certain phrasing, but also try and understand why, why, certain letters created barriers. And so, I'm, you know, it definitely makes sense with this, how you can't always just try and present the outcome. One more quick example of that. When I was learning English, there were certain phrases that I just didn't understand. I, I Even if I knew what individual words meant, when they were put together, it didn't make any sense to me. So, yep. for example, it's raining cats and dogs. Yep. Yeah. Like, what on earth does that mean? Like, I don't <laughs> see cats and dogs falling down from, from the sky, right? But we yeah. know what that means, right? We, we, as English speakers, we understand that it's raining lots. But when you express it that way, unless you actually know the meaning behind it, like you just don't understand it just by putting the words together. Yep. In the same way, just by putting the letters together, you can't understand what a word means. You know, an an interesting one with regards to that is there's often metaphors or illustrations that are used in language where even a native English speaker doesn't actually know its origins or what it means, such as... Nip it uh, in the bud. (laughs) That's a good one. Or I'll take a rain check on that. Uh, Most people don't know actually what a rain check is. They know what it it stands for. But now notice what's happening here, though, guys. We're not appealing to the way that the words are, are written, or we're not even appealing to the sounds that we are, are making at a physical level to explain the language, right? We're not, that, and that's that bottom-up approach. What we're talking about now, and, and Troy, that you started leading us into, though, that's a top-down approach. We're, we're, mm-hmm. the, the speaker is, ex- is explaining the rules that guide the language and how the information is found there. So, so you can already begin to see that an argument's being made, that there is both physical knowledge and a non-physical knowledge, and you cannot use this physical knowledge to access this non-physical, or we could call it like a higher knowledge that mm. 
that they're connected, no doubt, in the same way that a piece of paper is connected to English that's being written on it, like a printed page in a book. They're, they're connected, but there is a difference between the physical parts that make up a page of paper and the information that that paper can contain. Or we could put it another way. There is a difference between the physical makeup of the ink that contains a word versus that word. Like that, you know, that yes, they're connected, but you cannot access that information using that bottom approach. And because of that, things like Egyptian hieroglyphics remains a dead language. You somehow have to get a top-down approach on the language. And so back to like your illustration, Troy, notice how that happens. How do we get a top-down perspective on language. When a person goes to university, they are taught, say, Spanish, for example, for myself, or here in Canada, it's French often. And and that's done often with a textbook. So the textbook Mm -hmm. is explicitly telling you this word means this. Now, that's one way to learn a language. Now, intriguingly, there is another way to learn a language, which is referred to as a a tacit way of learning. And tacit just means silent. It means that you're accessing knowledge silently. For example, if you go and immerse yourself in a foreign language, you go live in Korea, you go live in, you know, Spain or, or a South American country that speaks Spanish, right? Like, you then can begin to learn and understand even the metaphors by watching how they're used in the context in which they're used. Now, Steve, I know this yeah. is this is your wheelhouse. You are the language guy. <laughs> yeah, I, I do have some interest in language. Um, you know, I, I've we've all learned language that way, right? With some very fringe exceptions, we uh-huh. all learn language by being immersed in it as children. That's how you acquire your first language, right? You just hear the words and you make the association. You see how the association is made, right? Even if your parents, sometimes your parents tell you explicitly, this is called such and such, right? But often, more often than not, you will actually see how the word is used and you use it. And then you figure it out by trial and error. Another similar example is this. In my garage, I have a miter saw. Now, for those of you who are not very familiar with woodworking, a miter saw, also called a chop saw, right? You have this blade this uh, on a lever kind of thing, and you bring it down to make this perfect 90-degree cut. And sometimes you can tilt the blade to cut in different ways, at different angles. Now, my son comes into the garage. He's five years old. I'd never seen a miter saw before, but he sees me using it. And I never had to explain to him what the miter saw was for. He knows at the very minimum that this thing is really good at making cuts, straight cuts. And then he sees me tilting it and he's like, oh, you can cut it at an angle too. I never once had to explain to him what this was. He didn't even know that it was called a miter saw, but just by looking at it, he knew exactly what the purpose was. And it's a lot like that. It, it is a lot like that. Now, Steve has just made a philosophical change in view. So we were talking about language, and now Steve kind of took that 
camera, that philosophical camera, and, and you just moved it over to a machine. And you applied the same principles because you're absolutely right. The same principles apply. Now, this is I know there's a weird way of thinking for some people because they tend to think of language and machines as different. But in fact, they're very similar because Mm. both you could think of language as a machine. A word is a type of machine. It's a machine in that it carries meaning for a specific purpose, and it's a and, and, and language is a very complex machine in that way as it is used for communication. But a saw is also uh, it's this machine that and we tend to think of those sorts of mechanical things in, in that way as more of machines, but they're both machines; they're just different types. And that sh- that saw has a meaning; it has an intended purpose in the way that it's used. Yeah, I mean, in fact, we sometimes use the phrase a linguistic device. Yeah, right? that's we right. We even use, talk about that. So a language, yeah, very much can be used in that way. So then think about this. Your son tacitly, silently learned what a saw was because he saw you using it. Now, you didn't need to do it that way. The other way you could have said is you could have pointed at it and told your son what it does. You, you could have been explicit about it. This is, this is what that machine does. Now, in archaeology, when people are digging in the dirt, they will find both languages and machines and games as well. Now, think about this with me. How do you get a dead language? Well, if you have a language that you cannot explicitly or tacitly access... For example, Egyptian hieroglyphics is no longer spoken, so I can't go immerse myself in the culture, and there's no one that can explicitly tell me what the word means, and when that happens, you you have this dead language. Now, you can also get dead machines. Archaeologists find dead machines all the time, and by that I mean it's a machine that we do not know its purpose. We don't we don't know what it what it's for. And we also find lots of games that that are just ancient games. But if you don't have the rules, I mean, could you imagine you know playing a game like when I'm playing with my family and you don't have the rules to like I mean, you know how it is. It's hard enough when you have the rules. But you right. know, you just unearth a game and you don't have the rules. Again, how are you going to find the rules. How are you going to find the information? Because the information or the rules is not in the material itself. Mm. And in the mm-hmm. same way that an artist that is carving uh, a statue in stone, the rules that are being applied to that stone as it's being carved are top down. It's from the person, not it's the material that the stone is made of. See, that I think that's one of the, the biggest challenges in communication altogether for example you there's the the typical like someone's having a text conversation now your perception of that person's vocal tone or what they're saying is entirely based off of your perception it's it's you're running your machine versus their machine but the problem is without proper context your interpretation can lead to confusion and there's a and and I, that's one of the biggest challenges today is you look at the online world you look at how people interact with the with each other is there's this danger within the human experience that if we're not actually interacting face to face within each other's context within proximity 
it can lead to more confusion. So I can imagine something like, you know, the, the Rosetta Stone, you're getting into languages without that proper context, you're going off of a broken interpretation or an inaccurate interpretation. Well, that's the nice thing about being in conversation is we can Mm. further discuss, we can get clarity so that we can understand how something's being said. When you don't have that, right, you're just looking at the text itself to to gain that information. Now, when we're looking at the Rosetta Stone and we're talking about a, a language that's been dead for over a millennia, you can begin to appreciate how far removed we are from the meaning of of that text and how easy it would be to go astray. Now, now, because some people could say, well, Andy, what if you just guessed at its meaning? Well, that's where language is so nice because, uh, and I know that sometimes this can be confusing for some people when we have these sorts of conversations because they'll think about, Steve, your illustration of the machine that your son watched you using, the saw, Right. See, you and I are used to seeing a saw in operation, and so it's it's easy for us to think that you could just deduce what a saw is and understand its its purpose. It, it kind of going, oh, it's just obvious that that's what that's what it's for. There there are those moments where something can be potentially obvious. However, you're still not one hundred percent sure. That that's how they used it. I mean, a saw, maybe that was used for cutting off people's hands. Or maybe a saw was used as some sort of communication device. Or, I mean, the like, we could think of all sorts of things because there are moments where you can actually use a device for that's actually more effective than its intended way. I'll give you a, a prime example. For me as an Oregonian, I'm originally from Portland. And anyone from Portland understands uh, Nike shoes because, you know, Portland's where Nike shoes were born. And so it's kind of like this myth or legend that everybody in in Oregon kind of knows how the Nike shoe was invented. And and it was invented using a waffle iron. The, the, The waffle iron was the first sole that was made for for a running shoe. And I think you could argue that a waffle iron has been a more effective machine to make running shoes <laughs> than to make breakfast. But if you want to understand the way an ancient civilization used it, you need to know what they were intending for it, especially if you want to understand them. And that's where language I really like, because some people in our modern day will kind of go, oh, but does it really matter if I know exactly how that culture was using it? And when it comes to information or understanding a civilization or being able to read a language, that's why language is so helpful. The answer is absolutely it matters. It matters completely because you might be able to use Egyptian hieroglyphics in all sorts of interesting ways, but you won't know anything about ancient Egypt. You, you won't have or access the plethora of information that is that that treasure of information that is hidden in the language unless you understand how it was intended by those right. people. Yeah. Yeah. So you can take the hieroglyphics, for example, and you can just start giving it, okay, this shape you know, the, it, it corresponds to that sound and this shape corresponds to that sound. And then you can just arbitrarily, right, start giving it whatever value you want and then just start using it amongst yourselves. But it doesn't take you any closer to actually understanding how this was used 
right? Just just as when I was learning English, I couldn't just give the each alphabet letter whatever sound value I wanted. I actually, if I'm going to actually communicate it with, you know, communicate with an English speaker, right? Uh, then I actually had to learn. Okay, how is this used? What meaning does this? What objective meaning, right? Do these letters have, and how are they used? Um, I can just give it whatever meaning I wanted. It's very similar to that illustration that Andy sometimes uses about when he came home one day, right? You saw this stick figure drawing on Tristan's door. Right, Tristan is uh, Andy's oldest son. At the time, I believe he and his little brother were sharing a room, and there was this stick figure drawing of two big stick figures, two little stick figures, and around two big stick figures, there was a circle with a line through it. And so Andy's like, yeah, what happened at the Steiger residence today? Now, he could have, he could have given it whatever meaning he wanted, but that wouldn't have been its true meaning. In which, basically, I thought it said, I don't like mom and dad. I've, I've circled them with a line through it. They're jerks. That's how I, that's how I interpreted it, right? I'm guessing. Right. But again, yeah. this comes back to the rules we're talking about. If you want to know what it actually means, what is it actually communicating? Well, I had to go ask him, right? Because uh, it's either that, that explicit or tacit way of knowing. Right. And so I explicitly asked him, what does it mean? And he told me, well, it means, Dad, that when I'm wrestling my brother inside here, uh, that you can't come and stop us. <laughs> in other words, <laughs> I'm going to beat my brother up in my room, and I don't want you stopping me from doing it. Uh, which I explained to him that, you know, that's not going to happen. But it, it, yeah. <laughs> it's a good, it, that's a good entryway, Steve, into kind of coming back then to the Rosetta Stone and saying, okay, on the Rosetta Stone, we've got, we've got these drawings that are going on, and... We're wanting to access the information. So, so how do we get how do we get access to it, knowing that we can't do it bottom up? We can't do it by looking at the material or looking at the symbols. We can't do it by guessing. We're gonna have to do it by this top down method. But the language is dead, and so that's where the Rosetta Stone is so significant because it has three languages on it. On the top is Egyptian hieroglyphics. In the middle is Demotic, which is common uh, Egyptian. Interestingly, it's like it's a what what I've heard referred to as a highly cursive Egyptian hieroglyphics. So it was it was mm. the language that the that the people use. And then at the bottom was ancient Greek. Now, for those of you that are really interested in going deeper into how the Rosetta Stone was deciphered, which is a fascinating story. There's two resources that I would recommend to you if you'd like to go deeper. Uh, the first is a book called The Rosetta Stone and the Rebirth of Ancient Egypt. It's a small book and a great uh, little read that'll give you a history of how it was deciphered. Now, the second it's, is really great as well. It's a, it's a course that you can watch on the teaching company or the great courses, as it's called. And this one's called Decoding the Secrets of Egyptian Hieroglyphs. It's also a wonderful resource. So here's basically what happened. The stone is found in 1799. People see that it has these three languages on it. They can't read the top two. Can't read the Egyptian hieroglyphics. They can't read Demotic, but they can read ancient Greek. They read the ancient Greek, and the ancient Greek basically says that this is a note it's written in uh, the year 196 BC. It's written by the priests of Egypt 
to Ptolemy thanking him for reducing their taxes, which I think it's hilarious, right? The times have not changed. So thank you for not taxing <laughs> us so much. Much appreciated. And that the bottom of the note in, in Greek, it reads, and this is key, this is the same message written in three languages. It's the same message. Oh. And so they now know that this message in Greek is the same in the other two that they don't know how to read yet, Demotic and Egyptian hieroglyphics. Long story short, they end up using Coptic to decipher Demotic, and then they end up using the Greek and Demotic uh, to decipher Egyptian hieroglyphics. But the challenge in doing all of this is that they were working under a mistaken idea. They believed that Egyptian hieroglyphics was ideographic. Now, Steve, you're the language guy. You want to just explain mm-hmm. what what that is, ideographic, and perhaps maybe give an illustration of a language that is ideographic? Yeah, ideographic means that a symbol represents a concept. Um, so English and Korean, they're both phonetic. So, uh, for example, the letter A has a sound value. Right, It doesn't represent a concept, it represents the sound. In ideographs, a symbol represents a concept. So Chinese is much like that, because how the Chinese script came about was that they, um, they wanted to unite the peoples, different peoples who spoke different dialects and languages. The sounds were too different for them to come up with a phonetic script. So they decided to use ideographs instead. Basically, if you look at the the way numbers are written, the first three anyway, it's a line, right? One has a single straight line, and then two has two lines, three has three lines, those kinds of things, right? And then four or five, those look a little different. But Chinese is a, a probably the most well-known example of an ideograph. That's why there are so many different symbols that you ha- actually have to learn. Um, and so they their ideographs... And then later they are sometimes used for their sound value after, right? So for example, when they oh, write <laughs> foreign names, right? For example, the name Jesus, right? They can't use their symbols for, for their the, the content in it. So instead they assign certain sound values and then they use that. So th- that's an ideograph. So my guess is that's why so many people who go and get Chinese tattoos very often have it way wrong, because all they did was go on Google and type something in. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I want to just mention here, I didn't set Steve up with that. He is so nerdy that I knew if I threw him that and just asked <laughs> for that to be explained... <laughs> That he would be able to do that on the spot. Steve, you just How to catch a nerd 101. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Language nerd at the highest level. So given when you look at Egyptian hieroglyphics, and because it's all pictures, uh, right? It's a bird or a staff or some grain or whatever. You're like, oh, this must be ideographic, right? This must be communicating through the image. But in fact... It's not. Uh, it, it, they, those pictures represent sounds. Now, Steve, I'm going to test your mm-hmm. language nerdiness. Uh-oh. Do you know if Egyptian hieroglyphics is read right to left or left to right? Oh, that I don't know. Uh, 
I got him. <laughs> hazard a guess. I would hazard a guess and say right to left because I find that a lot of languages around that area go right to left. Troy, do you know the answer to this? I don't think it's even right to left. Uh, for a second there, I thought you had it because you you said you said trick question. It is a trick question. It is red. Uh. <laughs> Either right to left or left to right, and the way that you oh, okay, know okay, which okay. way to read it is the way is the direction that the animals are facing. Dependent, dependent upon where they're facing tells you where you would start reading from. So if they're facing to the left, you would start from the left. Well, I'll that, just edit it to make it sound like I got it right. So then. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so that was just that was just a fun little little side note there, but. You can imagine then, because they think it's ideographic, it takes even longer to decipher decipher this because they don't mm-hmm. realize that they should be looking at the sound value uh, that these pictures mm-hmm. uh, are, are making. Long story short, by 1822, uh, um, there's this guy by the name, last name of Champon who declares that I figured it out. I've, I've solved Egyptian hieroglyphics. Now, there was another guy by the name of Thomas Young who was doing a lot of uh, work on this before him. Uh, and there was also um, a guy by the name of William Banks who helped as well. Because this is an interesting side note for those of you that, that are interested in, in the Rosetta Stone. There, were, uh, there was another obelisk that was found that contained a Greek and Egyptian that also helped in this whole translation process that that William Banks found. And then he also found uh, a bunch of uh, bunch of names. Uh, again, without going into the details, this ultimately helps these guys as they're as they're beginning to realize again, it's not ideographic. They're making sounds and then ultimately uh, what those sounds are. Fun little fact again, Often it's noted as 1822 that Egyptian hieroglyphics was was decoded, but in fact, even when when Champon said in 1822 that he had figured it out, he in fact didn't because he still thought it was ideographic. A little bit more information would come, and by 1824, he finally figured out they're making sounds. They understood what they were, and then for the first time in millennia, this dead language became living again and people were able to decipher what Egyptian hieroglyphics was saying and that could be a whole nother show talking about all the stuff that they found when they started being able to read the language and one of the biggest that might surprise you guys is everyone at that time thought that that Greek civilization was the oldest they they thought everybody every civilization kind of bowed its knee to the Greeks, but what they began to realize is that the Egyptians was Egyptian culture was far older, uh, wow. and that 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 was a real mind bender. Those are things that we just kind of take for granted now, but that sort of that sort of information came once we could begin to read the language. Now I want to begin to come. Back into what? What is this interesting conversation about Egyptian hieroglyphics and this, this Rosetta Stone? What does this actually have to do with human beings? I, I want to begin to make that that kind of shift because this, I think, is really critical uh, and it has a lot to say. But before we fully come over into what this has to say to us as as humans, I first want to just pose a question that perhaps you'd never thought of before, and and it's this. What's the difference between a secret code 
and a dead language. So, for example, in World War II, as we know, there were secret codes being used, and one of the most well-known is the Enigma machine, which was incredibly difficult to crack. But by lots of hard work, eventually, you know, these secret codes can be cracked, right? You can you can figure out what's being communicated by the enemy and, mm-hmm. in fact, helped win World War II by cracking that code. But what's the difference between this secret code and a dead language? Why can we not crack the code on a dead language until something like a Rosetta Stone is found? With a secret code, it's almost like you might you might already have a foundation to work off of. Where, you know, like you can at least like, okay, there's a pattern here, but the pattern changes. I mean, it's it's not the answer, but at least it's something you can go off of. Now you can try and, okay, let's try and pay attention to patterns. Let's see if there's anything that's reused. When it's reused, what happens? But then I feel like something like a dead language where you don't, even if there is a pattern, you don't recognize it because it's not something that is still used, isn't something that's common whatsoever, you don't really have a foundation to go off of. You have to take everything at face value. Yeah, you know, Troy, you're on the you're on the right track. Because if you think about it, if you went to a foreign country and you just found yourself in, you know, a country that speaks Arabic, for example, and if you're somebody like me, I literally know virtually no Arabic, it, it might as well be a secret code. But because I'm living there and I'm watching as it's being used, and this is key, the language is being used. It's it's what I refer to as it's dynamic. It, it's it's in action. Well, then you can begin to use different tools and different modes of of like you said, like uh, observing that you can begin to crack that that code. Now, some though, see now Arabic may be a little bit different because as you're living in that country, they're not trying to obscure the language. Whereas a secret code is a little more difficult because mm-hmm. they're purposely trying to obscure it. But because it's in action, you will eventually be able to crack it. It's not if, it's just when. It's just a matter of time. Yeah, Yeah, a great example of that. I think I've shared this story multiple times before, but for those of you who haven't heard it, uh, where I met my wife was at Canada Institute of Linguistics. We were both studying linguistics at the time. And this school is actually connected, affiliated with Wycliffe Bible Translators. Mm-hmm. So a lot, of our, a lot of our training kind of revolved around that. And my favorite course was this one called Field Methods, where they actually simulate a scenario where you go into a village, let's say, you meet a tribe and you don't share a common language. They don't know your language. You don't know their language. And then we are taught, we're trained in uh, deciphering the language from scratch. One of the things we do, for example, here's a technique where you point at various objects and you ask what it means. Even if they don't know what it is you're saying, they can figure out that you're you're pointing at things. One of the first things that we do in language is naming things, right? Mm-hmm. Calling it what it is, because those kind of become pegs that you can use later to connect the dots later. And so, and then we move from there, we collect all this data of what different things are called. Then we have the sounds, then we figure out how the sounds work, and then you can start creating an alphabet. And, and so you go from there figure out the language. And so it's a lot like that. When you move into a country where you don't know the language, you can figure it out because people are still living who understand 
how this language works and you can start figuring it out from scratch. And so really what you're getting at there, Steve, is is that that is a method that is both explicit and tacit. So you're immersed mm-hmm. in it and you're actually saying pointing at things, telling me, you know, saying, okay, what is what is that? And as you start to build a foundation in that language, it, it builds, you know, more and more quickly. Now, right. now it could be the fact that you might only be able to look at something explicitly, such as Egyptian uh, hieroglyphics was kind of a mix, actually, in some regards, because it's explicit in these other languages that are helping. But although, but also those other languages are dynamic, and watching its interaction with Egyptian hieroglyphics helps you to begin to to translate uh, how uh, that that language works. Right. Without getting too complicated here, because I want to begin to make that transition over into people. First, though, the transition needs to happen over into a machine. Notice that the principles that we're talking about apply to a machine as well. Now, as an example, I and I've done this with teachers before as just a, as an as an experiment. And this is um, a fun thing that you could do with students as you're talking about this subject. I've made a list of ancient machines that people have never seen before. And I have a bunch of pictures of them, and I, you can present them to people and say, hey, can you tell me what this is? Now, what's interesting is I'll give when I give them these pictures, some of them, no one knows what that machine does. It, again, it's become a dead language. And you'll, you'll, you can find these dead machines periodically on uh, museum websites. Sometimes museums will find things that they're like, I have no idea what this is. And they'll just post it on the <laughs> web and say, can anybody help me figure out what this is? And it's interesting because they have figured out certain machines by doing that because there is somebody who has either witnessed it in use or or knows and, and they they can explain to the museum, oh, that does this. Um, I, I remember one in particular that they couldn't figure it out, and then they found out that oh, that that machine was used to cut tobacco leaves. But but there are some that are just still dead. They're like they're like we have no idea what these what these machines do. Again, it raises that question. Okay, well, if you have a machine, how are you going to figure that out? Well, well, as we were talking about with Steve's illustration, either somebody can explicitly tell you, hey, that's what this machine does. It cuts tobacco leaves, or you what you watch it in action cutting you know tobacco leaves right and you're like okay well that that's what it is now notice then what we're talking about with machines and this is this is the key that that we're getting after is you can apply the same principles to a human being as a biological mm. machine and if we apply all these same principles to a human we then are asking as a human a static machine? In other words, is it not in operation? Are we just witnessing it statically and trying to figure out what it is? Because if that's the case, then we can only be told explicitly what it is. Because again, it's like a saw that's not being used to saw. It's like a car that's not being used to drive, right? Like it's just just sitting there. Uh, And because you're not seen in an operation... You're not going to be able to just figure out. Same way a language, it's not in operation. You're not just going to be able to figure it out. It ha- would have to be explicitly told to you, this is what it is. But, and this is where it gets interesting, a human is a dynamic machine. A human is in operation. We can watch 
a human being. Right. By the way, some very interesting reading is reading Descartes. Descartes was not only a philosopher, he was very interested in biology and how the human body worked. And one of the things that they wanted to figure out was, for example, for himself, was how the heart works. What, what, is, what is the heart? And so you could imagine for people you know, back in the 1500s, it would have been hard to figure out what the heart is <laughs> because it's, it's in operation, but it's behind all this flesh, right? Like, yeah, how yeah. do I watch it in operation? It took a, so it took a little while. And, and people would come up with some interesting hypotheses. For example, you'd be like, oh, but blood, you can imagine that it's, it's pushing. And they're like, yeah, we can see that it's pushing or would come out of the body, but they didn't quite understand how it would do that or why. And so for a while, they had this hypothesis that the heart was a furnace and that it heated the blood and that by heating the blood got got it to circulate. (laughs) My point in bringing that up is you can watch the heart in operation because it's dynamic and you can deduce, this is science, right? You can deduce what it is and how it operates. You can continue that process as you look at not just the heart, but as you look at the entire person and ask, what happens when I witness a person in operation? What do we learn about a human being? What, What at the end of the day is a human machine? It's such an interesting way of looking at I think sometimes in life we we do look at ourselves as as a machine and and there is mechanical aspects to us like we you think about how we call it we call it the cardiac cardiovascular system we call it the respiratory system there's these fixed processes that that our bodies you know do but then it's when you come into things like the mind that's when things are that's when the unpredictable happens. And I equate this to how we were talking before, you talking about language and how, you know, we're, there's language machines, there's certain ways that we interpret and, and communicate. But then when you get into the art world, which is what I would compare to the mind, you get into the art world, you can bend those terms and meanings. I can take one word and for the sake of art, I can bend it and everyone knows that that's not exactly what I'm saying, you know, that, okay, he's not exactly using the word right, but it rhymed or it it sounds good in my ears. And so it's interesting to look at ourselves as, uh, I, I think there's no other way to look at us as dy- apart from dynamic because of that mental aspect of things. Now, now you're getting into an interesting aspect of what it means to be human that notice you worked from the lower base mechanical aspects of a human to a higher level of what it means human. You could do the same thing with Steve's saw analogy. I could look at the motor on a saw. I could even look at the blade on a saw. And those are all machines in their own right, but we know yeah. that they're contributing to a higher machine, the, 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 the final product that is actually intended to cut would right that it has this yeah. purpose it's pointing towards now you're doing you were doing the same thing notice there troy you're, you started with lower aspects of what it means to be human and you started working towards the mind which gets interesting in that the human mind has the ability to give things meaning and 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 mm-hmm. that that's an interesting aspect 
that well, we won't go into that, but uh, I'm going to continue on this higher level of what it looks like to be human. But first, it sounds like, Steve, you want to say something. Oh, no, I, I you kind of touched on it because I, I was going to zero in on the word intended and purpose, right? These are not things that you can get simply with the parts, right? But all of these parts have to work together to accomplish some purpose. In this case, the miter saw, the purpose is to cut wood at different angles, right? right? And so there's the purpose. Now, again, purpose is not, it's not a physical thing, but it's just as real uh, in my mind, right? And, and I think that you could apply well, some that. Some would say it's more real. Yeah. And we could apply that to a human being. So, okay, you have the heart, you have your cardiovascular system, you have your nervous system, respiratory, digestive, all of these things. But what is the purpose of the whole? What is the purpose? Because we have different parts, but we're not just collecting the parts. We're composites. We seem to have, a, you know, like a goal-directed kind of behavior, right? So we can kind of start moving in that direction. Is that sort of what you had in mind, Andy? Yeah. So we could ask about this goal-directed movement. Now, maybe before we go there, I just want to clarify then, notice how two things are happening simultaneously. On the one hand, we have the parts that our body is made of. And you could go all the way down to the molecular level, say an atom, for example. But notice that atom really doesn't tell you anything yeah. about what it means to be human, other than these are the parts that the, mach that the machine is made of. And the same way that a saw can be made of stainless steel, for example, but that doesn't tell you anything about what it does. It, it, those are just the parts it's made of. Which, right. although, by the way, is an interesting part of science. This is called pure science, where we look at the parts and we look at the physical laws that those things follow. But we have this other aspect of science we call applied science. So notice, these two work tandem. You got pure science and you got applied science. Now, applied science is the engineering. It's when I take the parts and I give it a human law, not a physical or natural law, I give it an intended, designed, we get this word telos, telos or designed law, where I'm saying this is what it's for, going back to the saw, to cut wood. And that might mean that it's got a couple machines that are coming together to create this overarching goal. And that, that's a great and, and key word there, Steve, because now as we're looking at a human person, we can look at, yeah, the human person has lots of machines, if you will, that are leading up to this goal. What is that goal? If we look at the idea of morality and more, by morality, we're saying that when you come into a relationship with, a, with another person, that you encounter dignity there. And, and you encounter uh, this moral code that there are certain ways in which you do and do not treat persons, that, that they demand respect, that there's duty owed there. And yeah. you can then begin to ask, well, you know, we all intuitively understand that. I mean, that's why you even have the Universal Declaration of Human Rights by the UN, a, an incredibly secular organization, but still identifies that all persons have inherent dignity, right? That, that you, can't, you can't help but encounter this morality. 
that is overarching, defining who and what we are as human beings. And you see this even in Christianity. Now, notice Christianity can approach this from two different perspectives. And, And actually, I would say three different perspectives in that you have God's written words, right? You can have revelation, God's explicit knowledge of this is what it means to be human. Say, you know, this is what a human being is. This is what this machine was created for. And by the way, which Jesus says repeatedly, love God and love people. And you you see this moral operational principle, this moral purpose that is being communicated throughout the Bible. You were created to be in a, a right, good relationship with God and a right, good relationship with people. The, the problem, though, is that you and I live in a broken world where we constantly don't live up to that dignity that we encounter in one another, and we break relationship. So this is an interesting aspect of the Christian faith, because the Christian faith is saying, yes, you are defined by this morality. And again, I want to explain, because I think it's easy for people to go, what? I'm defined by morality? Well, if morality is your right or good relationship with God, and your right and good relationship with one another, then yes, that's what you were created for. And you begin to see that this is what Jesus is stepping into. Jesus is ultimately saying, you are not Mm. enough. Your moral compass is broken. I think what we could say is that we're no less than biological machines, but we're far more, right? We're, we're we're, We're not denying that we're biological machines, we're just denying that that's all we are. And I think that that's ultimately what we're getting at when we use the word person, right. that I'm a person, that really that's what we're communicating. And that ultimately, it's like a saw that was created to cut wood and build houses, but the saw is, is broken, it's damaged, it's not able to complete the purpose it was created for. And you have Jesus that's coming, although you can't live this out he did live this out. And through him, you and I can learn yeah. to be the persons that God created us to be. In other words, let me put it this way. It's maybe more of a poetic way of looking at this. When we begin to see ourselves correctly, we are like a dead language because of sin and evil that becomes a living language in Jesus. That in Jesus, now we can we can understand more deeply who we are and we can actually live that out to its fullest through him that begins now and is ultimately fulfilled when we see him face to face. Thank you guys so much for joining us on the AC podcast. The podcast is a ministry of apologetics Canada. And as such, we are on all of your favorite streaming platforms. So make sure you like, and subscribe and also follow us on our social media. We'd love to interact with you. We'd love to hear from you. If something we said sparked interest or you'd like some further information, feel free to send us an email at info at apologeticscanada.com. We'd love to hear from you. Join us next week as we find more things to think about till then love God, love people. Bye for now.